For listeners of the Film Jive podcast, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. That's audibletrial.com slash filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. This is episode number 98. We are recording on November 15th, 2016. I am your host, Zach Batanti, and joining me on today's show is co-host Simone Barros. And I'm also very excited to welcome this episode's featured guest, Bill Ackerman, who is the host of the film interview podcast, Supporting Characters, which is a part of the Now Playing Network. Each episode, Bill conducts a long-form interview with an individual who has generated their passion for cinema into some kind of vocation. Often his guests occupy varied distinctions such as writers, bloggers, filmmakers, podcasters, fanzine publishers, programmers, preservationists, even home video distributors, all of which share more about their creative endeavors within today's film culture. The show premiered in March of this year, and ever since has uh, quite possibly become my favorite film podcast, Uh, certainly my favorite film podcast to emerge in quite some time. So I strongly encourage anyone who uh, concludes listening to this episode to uh, visit the Now Playing Network and give uh, Bill's show, Supporting Characters, a listen, as well as all the other podcasts that are available uh, through that network. In addition to hosting the Supporting Characters podcast, Bill has also appeared frequently on the Directors Club podcast, as well as appearing on the Projection Booth, and has written for various uh, film websites such as Diabolique Magazine and Lunchmeat VHS. The film Bill chose to discuss is John D. Hancock's 1971 American horror film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, featuring performances by Zora Lampert, Gretchen Corbett, Mary Claire Costello, Barton Heyman, and Kevin O'Connor. I sit here and I can't believe that it happened. And yet I have to believe it. Nightmares or dreams. Madness or sanity. I don't know which is which. Let's Scare Jessica to Death opens with its title heroine, played by Zora Lampert, sitting motionless in a rowboat, facing away from the camera. It appears to be Dawn. Her gently anguished voiceover carries us into her story, a survivor's account of a traumatic series of events. Jessica, her husband Duncan, and their friend Woody had taken over an old abandoned house in a small town. Jessica was recently discharged from a hospital after suffering an emotional breakdown. They found a young woman named Emily squatting in their new house and invited her to stay. Soon afterward, Jessica began seeing uncanny things while Woody, then Duncan, were seduced by Emily. The ambiguous narrative that unfolds can be observed as a vampire tale or as the subjective perceptions of a mentally ill woman. 
The film offers the horror genre's requisite ghouls, shocks, and corpses rising from the depths. It's not art house horror devoid of cheap thrills, but the overriding atmosphere is of loss, even emotional exhaustion at times, uh, much more so than a straightforward visceral horror show. First time writer-director John D. Hancock took, me, took an existing horror satire screenplay titled Eight Drinks Hippie Blood about a monster devouring representatives of the counterculture and refashioned it as a poetic, downbeat variation on the female-centered horror films of Roman Polanski. Jessica, Duncan, and Woody have been shaped by the counterculture of the 1960s, but they're not cartoonish hippie stereotypes. They're protest-generation adults looking to domesticate on their own terms. They may be dropping out, but they're still closer to the former protesters of Return of the Secaucus 7 than the teenage victims of something like Last House on the Left or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. While the film doesn't attempt an extended metaphor, implying that Jessica's nightmare represents, say, the death of the 1960s idealism, the fact that the characters struggle with open hostility from small-town America as they attempt to enter the next phase of their lives suggests a compelling political expression. Was the free love spirit of the 1960s radicals too much for Jessica? You can interpret Let's Scare Jessica to Death as a sexually conservative nightmare, where Emily's predatory carnality seduces all men to such an extent that the entire town is now devoid of all other women, except for an endangered mute young girl clothed in virginal white. Is Emily really an evil supernatural creature, a vengeful ghost, or a vampire? How much of this is a paranoid fantasy of Jessica, a woman who fears she's become too much of an emotional handful to retain her husband's interest? Yes, ultimately, the thing that repeats in Jessica's internal monologue the most is her anxiety about her husband, um, not just about his interest in her, that's on the forefront of it, but more so his security and her sanity that he, she repeats and whispers, you know, to herself, you know, he thinks I'm crazy. He doesn't believe me. Even one time it's a turnover in one sentence. She says, he likes her. He doesn't believe me. I'll lose him. It's connected for her that his thinking that her um, thoughts or her opinion or perspective doesn't have credibility is hand in hand with her being in a relationship with him. And I think it's very interesting that for her, in the end, it's when she kills her husband that becomes the ultimate moment of isolation for her. It's not all the other moments or all the other deaths or even when she's in the um, small boat by herself. It's when she sees that the attacker that she has now defeated is her husband. And that becomes her ultimate moment of isolation. I guess my question to you then is um it's a tragedy for the character but in the framework of the film is it a triumphant moment at all it's kind of like a survival moment but that moment of survival does not have triumph in it so there is a relief that seems to be expressed um just because it's now quiet the sunset is glowing and and that has a pleasing image to us as the viewer but for her, there's also this sense of she's safe now because Emily turns and leaves the bank of the channel and the men follow her and leave. So there's this sense that she is out of danger, but I don't think it's a triumphant moment for Jessica. She lowers herself in the boat, leaning down um, in sort of a sad exhaustion, the last we have a reprise of her voiceover from the beginning where she says, was it all real? 
did it all happen? Something along those lines, I'm not quoting exactly, just paraphrasing. And then she sinks down and leans over to where we don't see her. And so there is a vanishing of her. I, I agree with you. Um, I do think, though, throughout this film, we are observing many moments where Jessica is disempowered by her husband because, as you said, he her opinions, her thoughts don't have credibility with him. So he's always doubting and to some degree, I feel denying her agency. And I don't think it's intentionally cruel, but I, but I do think it's systemic. And I think the further she gaze, it fades from his gaze, uh, which becomes more and more consumed with the presence of Emily um, slash Abigail, the more she does become the ghost in the world of the film. And I think to me, by the end, she has kind of become completely marginalized, deprived of her voice, her freedom. And so I agree that it's not a triumphant moment, but it does, in a, in a way, I guess I feel like it is a character maybe striking back against uh, the patriarchal mode that's operating in this world. I do think that the film operates um, on a world that is male-filled, but it's not patriarchal because Emily is the is in control of it. But how is she in control of it? See, to me, I feel like Emily is representative of the ways that the female body is used to mobilize gender violence against itself. Which could be true, except that Emily herself never stands in danger of anything. And the men in the town tend to confront Duncan and Woody more so than they confront Jessica. So there does seem to be this sense of, you know, she uses these men the way, you know, it, it was the way a hive works, the way a queen bee. And I mean, even though in, in a hive, the, the drones are female bees, but what the men's role are in a hive situation is to support and prop up that queen. And so that seemed to be the mechanism that this town worked inside of, except for the antique dealer who didn't seem to be a part of the hive until he's attacked. And Jessica seems to happen upon that. It doesn't seem as though that's something that is point of potential, have been potential salvation or anything like that. She just seems to happen upon that he was attacked. And it seems the sole reason that he was attacked was to return the photograph to the house. So I think that the men do simply serve her. They don't tend to put her in danger or attack Emily in any way. And I think the temporary life of the young girl who was in the graveyard wearing white, she also didn't seem to be in danger of the men. It seems as though she was attacked by Emily. The implication to me seems that she was attacked by Emily. Emily is the one person that we see wielding the knife and making any attack on, upon anyone in an intentional way. The others just seem to swarm. Yeah, that's my take on it as well. I, I don't see it as, I, I see her as controlling the, the town. And uh, I always took it that the, the antiques dealer uh, was just marked after uh, giving the information about the old bishop place and engage, you know, uh, taking in property from the estate. I think that, identifies him in the in the in the uh to Emily to to Abigail at, at, to make marks him as the victim but uh 
Yeah, I, I always see her as controlling the town and, and, and controlling in a way that she only wants men to populate the town, which is why I think that the young girl is in danger once she is aware that the young girl is in the town. That's how I always read it. But. Do we don't see the antique dealer attacked on camera, right? It's just suggested when he's fishing. Right. I guess something I just, I thought was interesting in regards to Emily's character was that as far as we see, the way that she claims dominance in the room is by way of seducing the men, whereas the interaction her and Jessica have alone, it, that's where when she interacts with another woman where she almost adopts a more ba- male behavior in a more violent action in attacking her. No, I do. I do agree with you that Emily absolutely does attack Jessica, but it seems to be her second tactic. Her first yes. tactic with Jessica is is seducing. When she tries in the attic to speak to her telepathically and make eye contact, and, and then her voice does seem to be identified as the voice that calls to her. When we hear a voice saying, Jessica, join me, come to me, come to me, that, that we have confirmation is Emily in the scene when they're in the attic because of the shots between their two eyes the close-ups between their eyes and us hearing the voice calling to Jessica and saying look at me then when they go out to the water she first is rubbing the lotion on her back and it's when Jessica tells her you know to stop or I'm not comfortable I mean she doesn't use those words but it's when she says to stop that that's when she almost with this very playful expression on her face pushes her into the water and jumps after her and then becomes violent as as sort of like a second tactic, which I think is interesting because then we don't have a direct, we don't have the typical setup of women sort of marking their territory over the men. You know, we definitely have that Jessica is threatened, but she's not so much, none of her threatened internal dialogue is lobbied at Emily. She doesn't blame Emily or she doesn't do any sort of the things that we see in a patriarchal society, men going against each other. She's too sexy or why she dressed this, you know, this sort of like resentful and that the woman is to blame and the man has no role in it because how, what else could he do but be tempted and this woman shouldn't be this way. Instead, Jessica continually in her internal monologue questions her husband and says he's lost interest, he doesn't believe me, you know, he likes her, but she never expresses anger or resentment toward Emily. And even the way Emily's character is portrayed, the way the film handles Emily, the camera never looks lustfully at Emily. And um, she definitely has a seducing quality to her in her song and and in the story that she tells at the dinner table. She kind of spins you know, an enchantment both times, one with her song, the second time with her story. And I really love the way the film makers take the audio when she's telling her story and sort of grind it and, and distort it. But we can hear that she is, she's got Woody and Duncan engaged in her story. That sort of way that she's just this interesting, maybe aloof woman, as opposed to this coquettish seducing you know succubus I really think is interesting and I like about the film um, I think it makes the film stronger that, that it has that approach when you're watching it I mean do you 
what is your interpretation of it? I mean, when you do you do you see it as a supernatural story, or do you see it just as ambiguous, or do you see it as a um, just as as the vision of somebody that is an unreliable narrator, but it's a realistic story? Yeah, I mean, the questions that you raised in the opening and the question you're asking now, what all these things lead to is that it's it's evident that as a viewer you're unable to walk away i feel like from the film with any confidence in a fixed interpretation because the film proposes so many mm-hmm. and to a greater extent i i almost feel that attempts to you know quote solve the film is almost a reduction of its shape you know much of what i found pleasurable and profound about this was its refusal to deny or define the landscape as anything other than liminal, you know, whether that's a result of artistic intent or if it's, that's manufactured out of some kind of structural failure, you know, we could, can debate that, but regardless of the cause, there's, there is a, I, I feel like a pursuit of an ambiguous reality uh, that is a sustained effort. And I think that direction creates a film that allows for, an expression that's set within these sort of in-between spaces that are uh, they're polluted with memories of the past, secrets of the past, uh, regret, shame, melancholy. And I almost feel that we're meant to consider the implications of both the psychological breakdown of this woman or a supernatural phenomena. But I think the weight of the past, not just in the case of the of Abigail's drowning, uh, but also Jessica's past and the tension that exists previous to the film we see between her and her husband and the ten- the tension between Jessica and navigating through this farmhouse and the tension between the trio and the townspeople. All of these feelings are continuously go- continuously going unexpressed. And I feel that there's because there is so much repressed energy driving the film's atmosphere and the film's refusal to claim an accurate appraisal of reality, particularly because the perspective we get Jessica, it's so impassioned. It almost demands that the viewer make illogical assumptions about what is happening that are defined by uh, like cinematic horror motifs. Is Emily a vampire? Is she a ghost? Is this really happening? Are the townspeople zombies? Is Jessica being gaslighted? The absence of exposition creates a state of paranoia, which is the film's disposition, uh, rather than a narrative act with some kind of solution behind it, and that would absolve the characters and the audience of that paranoia. Like we have a we have a a film that is already ruled to some degree by some sense of disorder or chaos, and we are never really given a a bigger picture. And I think, to some degree, I interpreted that as potentially being a very deliberate political expression about the climate of the United States during the period, which kind of ironically feels somewhat similar today, at least for me in regards to feminist rights, the role of a woman in society, um, even imperial power in regards to like some allusions to Vietnam you could make. But I, I guess for me, that that's all to say that in a way, when I think about this movie, it embodies, uh, in my mind, uh, like a ruin, a narrative ruin, 
uh, political ruin, uh, social ruins, ruins of like the small town ideology, ruins of the mind. And uh, I think the content and the structure of the film is a reflection of uh, of a ruin that's that's in translation. Um, that the orator of the story has been relentlessly attacked by the society around her. That the translation has devolved into fantasy because so has the world around her. With the allusion you mentioned to protesting war. Is that illusion you're you're finding in just how Emily is wearing the army fatigue? No, well, jacket? specifically, it's the the fact that these townspeople are isolated and they're they keep talking about how they're they're wearing bandages and they're scarred and there's even I think a sequence where a guy is I mean they're older men but uh, like there's a guy wearing a VFW uh, jacket and why I think it, maybe today as we're talking about this and given recent events, it it felt similar to me that you have this portion of society that feels like they've been completely rejected and isolated in, in a way they've then constructed this, they've created their own little world. But in a way, like even that the fact that the men, as you're saying, they're all at the, they have this queen bee that they're at the hand, like they're controlled by somebody else. Which, in a way, I guess I was making the allusion to to someone who is a soldier. Like, ultimately, the actions that they're committing are not, you know, of their own agency. Yes, I agree with that, that they don't seem to be acting independently. And I, I think that it's sort of a, a the filmmaker is capturing a, a real experience that even on the most minor level, is felt when you do drive into a small town and just the heads will turn and look into your car and sort of follow you. It's it's sort of like it's taking that atmosphere and then imagining this um, surreal reason for it that's other than a societal reason. But in, in doing that, the film ends up becoming a metaphor for that presence or that, that action in society, which, yes, given the recent political... Um, or the current political time, it feels very relevant now. You mentioned that um, the typical horror film devices that this and that kind of informing us of whether it's supernatural or not. The film doesn't ever have Emily. There's no dissolves of Emily fading away. There's no, you know, kind of glimpses of her like moving through the forest. There's only that first time when she run when she runs across the upstairs landing from the staircase that we get this sort of or or even just the presence of someone sitting in that rocking chair on the front porch that we had any sort of those eerie devices being used the photographic approach to Emily is that she's very earthy she's not ethereal she's present and she's physical even though once we hit sort of the climax of the film there does seem to be a clear confirmation that she is the woman in the picture. Also, she wears the dress. She dons the dress when she comes up out of the water. So we, we do end up with this confirmation that she is the physical presence or embodiment of the woman who died, you know, on her wedding day. But as we're going into the film, and even after that moment of clarity, she's still not handled by camera or by editing as a fleeting or wispy 
figure. She's still very substantial and physical and, and contains a body. Which is to say that then I don't exactly know that there is a clear-cut answer to the supernatural part of it. Bill, when you watch or when you, um, in your feeling of the film, do you feel that it's substantially a supernatural storyline? I think it's meant to be ambiguous. When I watch it, I settle into it as a supernatural film, knowing that it can be interpreted in other ways. And I think that um, we talk about gaslighting and uh, I mean, you could read it as, as a misremembered uh, instance where gaslighting is being attempted by the other characters, but she remembers it as a fantasy or as a, as a horror story. Certainly by the end, when she murders her husband, I feel like that would suggest that the horror was never really uh, a supernatural threat at all. But I think when I watch it, I watch it as, uh, as an atypically poetic horror film that has all these other resonances to it. I allow the cheap thrills of it to work as horror movie tropes are intended to. It's a film, it's a film that I, I, I respond to it as much aesthetically as, as to any of the ideas in it. Um, I, I don't know if you care to comment on that part of it, but I mean, for me, it's a film where the images and the music, I mean, it's a, it's a film that I return to the way I return to a favorite record. I, I think there's something just very compelling and satisfying about how music and, and image tie together with it. Just the mood that it evokes. This is the first time both of you have seen it, correct? Yes. Yes. So what was your first impressions of it just aesthetically? I like the aesthetics very much. I agree with you that there's a really strong mood that's created that is actually inviting in a way that I don't find most horror films. They don't seem to spend time inviting me into the world, but that opening with with her in the boat You're crazy. on the lake. I think that's inviting. And the no, I mean that sun, most horror films you don't find inviting. I'm saying you're crazy. That I find them wanting to fright me and scare me from the get-go, you know, from, from the jump, you know, and, and wanting me to be on edge from the very beginning, you know, whereas this one I sort of felt like I was being lulled there, there is then the hearse that drives up and the hearse kind of kicks open and these legs come out, which could be jaunting, but it doesn't seem to be photographed that way, nor do we have audio that wants to frighten us. It just seems that that's a contrasting image. There's so much life bursting from the hearse. And she is the most, we, we do see a transition in her. She's, when she runs toward the grave, you know, she's like saying she'll only be a minute, she'll be quick. And it's almost very childlike. But, but then she has a, a gravity to her and she has like a guttural, she's not the screaming high-pitched heroine in a horror film. She's a, a weighty, guttural, almost, she reacts, it seems calmly, the more odd or strange or bizarre or dangerous uh, things become. Yeah, well, you mentioned the hearse, and I think that um, I, I, I don't know what the original origins of the screenplay were as far as how much of the horror satire, how much of that is retained in the version we know. But I think it's funny that it's, it's like a, it's a dark hippie joke that the hearse is just their car and the cemetery they're going to are just so that she can take the etchings from the, the headstones 
for art for art it isn't even really doesn't even really dawn on her the the morbid implications of it until she's cornered in that room surrounded by the images of the of the tombstones and then it becomes almost like she's made a little graveyard for herself <laughs> it's funny with the hearse because i agree it does the hearse and even the little painted love wording on the door almost it does seem like a joke to me but i almost thought it was um it's as if you have you have characters who embody the counterculture but almost like they they're embodying the aesthetics of it without actually the political ideology behind it so it's like well this is what we think the counterculture is a hearse and the word love painted on our door See, you know, do you know the song Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young? Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think of that song as representing a kind of gentle selling out of a protest generation youth. Like, it's like we've, we've had our riots and we've had our march and now, now we've got a house and that's kind of cool too, man. <laughs> like, I always think of that being the underlying tone of that song. And I think of these characters as embodying that. Like they've been in the city and it's heavy, but maybe because of her emotional fragility, like this is this is both for her to put her in a more uh, peaceful environment, but it's also for him to get out of the rat race. They talk about like the uh, the story of the of the of the slave who bought his own freedom, and that's what they're doing. They've earned just enough to live off the land, but they're still going from scratch. But it's people that come from that world and um, they, they still get a certain amount of resistance from small town USA. They still get called dirty hippie essentially, but their goals are a lot more domestic, uh, which I think is interesting. And it's a, it's a very atypical group of characters to base any kind of horror story around. Cause it's usually about young people without a whole lot of personality getting killed off. And it's usually aimed at, points of identification for younger audience. And this, this feels closer to, I think I said in my introduction, like the, uh, the kind of stories that Roman Polanski was doing, which had this kind of more adult sensibility that was still kind of, still kind of fresh, I think for the horror genre. Right. And, and even when I think about those films, there, they are, there is always sort of a, a subterranean aspect of humor. Roman, uh, Rosemary's Baby, that the neighbors are initially introduced as sort of buffoonish, that what is comical almost becomes sadistic by the end. But it, as you're talking about that, it makes me think that as somebody who lives in New York, you almost described, I almost feel like what everybody is trying to do in New York now, where it is like you go there to live there to make a living so that you can then leave and go, you know, live upstate or something like that. And it's all full of New York stage actors too. That cast and that director. Mm-hmm. It's so I don't know if that's their fantasy too. <laughs> right, maybe. In this interpretation, in this framework, does when Duncan suggests that Jessica go back to the city, how do you interpret that scene in this framework? I see that as as him wanting to have the affair. And to make it simple for himself to have it. And maybe that's just how she's hearing it, but that's how we're hearing it because she's our our guide through the story. So I, I only ever hear it as him trying to push her out the door, maybe reinstitutionalize her in some way. 
I would be curious to hear if there's another way to read that. Well, just thinking about it within the framework that if for them, this leaving of the city is a another defiance of the status quo, and then this, in an irony, returns them to the small town America, is there a political interpretation that he's saying return to the status quo, return to the thing that we left? We came here for you and your psychological space, but you go back. You know, there's this kind of interesting. Yeah. That is curious because one detail in the film that I became very obsessive over, the serving of raw meat at the meals. And unfortunately, you don't really know who is doing the serving of the raw meat, but to me, I almost wondered if it was it was signifying um, Jessica's inability to domesticate, that she doesn't know how to make a proper meal, and so therefore there is raw meat being served. I I saw that as as a return to a kind of savagery. Uh huh. I'm trying to think if do they make it clear? And I've seen the film enough times; I should know the answer to this. But do they make it clear what period? Uh, Abigail drowned in. No, unless it's in the, I mean, we have our cues from the costuming, the photograph, you know, has a sepia tone to it. Yeah. But I don't know if the antique dealer may say, but if it were the 19th century, then it's the turn of the century. Right. I read it with her costume and I read with the, aesthetic of the photograph that we were talking the late 1800s, the late 19th century. So, I thought I saw it as maybe a premonition of violence. I saw it as just her fantasy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting the second time it occurs because that comes after the a sequence at the cove where Emily says, I'll go make lunch. The serving of the raw meat is almost she's serving that because that's what she eats. Because if yeah. she's she's some kind of apparition, then I'm, I'm sure she doesn't get mad cow cow disease or salmonella or whatever. But <laughs> It'd be a very different ending to the film, but that's yeah. how it ended. <laughs> it certainly does. It's reminiscent to me, most prominently, of Messiah of Evil and the eating of raw meat in that film. Very different scenario, but no. But it's interesting that you say that because that film gets compared an awful lot since it's kind of. Um... The reputation for Messiah of Evil, which I I don't know if you know, I did a commentary track for that. Oh uh, yeah, with, with Patrick Rapal. But that that film, as it's growing in uh, reputation and recognition, it gets compared to Let's Get Jessica Death quite often. It has the same same structure. It's the uh, recounting of a traumatized survivor again, another woman, and so you're left with a very ambiguous horror story that plays out. But and again, like that countercultural underpinning too. I think. So. Maybe the same year that they were shot, too. Straw Dogs was um, released in 1971, and it also, you know, has this attack of the town attacking these young, you know, hippie generation people that are coming from the outside and trying to set their home there. But that's just a topical comparison. There are no other comparisons between the two films. They're very, very different. Yeah, I've spoken to John Hancock about influences, and I was pushing for art film influences of Roman Polanski or something. The only thing I got out of him was The Haunting, 
the uh, the Robert Wise film. Even Rosemary's Baby, he misremembered as coming later. So I don't think Polanski was on his mind, but it, it's the first thing that comes to my mind is repulsion, uh, even more than Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. I was curious, Zach, your your aesthetic impressions, I don't know if we've heard them, on uh, just how this played for you as uh, just on, on on the level of cinema beyond the ideas. I kind of completely agree with the way you articulated that it is um it is a film that I could see myself easily watching over and over again just just enjoying the the imagery of it i mean the the autumnal setting the colors the textures of the house i think something that i really responded to a great deal that made me even think about you want an art house influence, somebody like Valerian Borovchek was just mm. the, there is an emphasis on objects in the film and just the way that everyday objects can become these very menacing presents. But no, the definitely like the, the, the locale of the orchard I felt was really unique. Uh, the fact that every, nearly every wide composition of the house is sort of this like phase hazy like dusk um image that we don't even really get a sense of the scope of the house architecturally like we're inside and it it almost felt like this labyrinth to me that there are so many rooms that we may not even explore over the course of the film but it's sort of suggested yeah watching it this time i i was struck by how the, the young girl in the white dress appears in the cemetery at the opening of the film, but then they have to cross that water. And I'm not the person to observe that it's like crossing the river Styx. I forget where I read that, but uh, crossing the ferry to get to the uh, the town. But I don't know if that girl is riding the ferry also, or, if she, or if she is meant to just be not entirely a, uh, a human character, uh, but how she's making that, that trip over. <laughs> I did hear, I think, um, John Hancock say that that was sort of a studio note that they wanted a little girl yeah. running around or something. And he was like, it, I, it made no sense, but we did it. Yes. Yeah. The, the seance also was something that was uh, added at their, at the request of others, but it, it creates a wonderful moment mm-hmm. that sadness when she's trying to evoke the spirits. And I always saw that as her way of, I mean, she's already inviting Emily to stay. Uh, literally, you know, in two different instances, but that's really how I I take that as her inviting Abigail, not just the uh, not just some hippie that is a uh, crashing at their house, but really inviting. If there is a supernatural component to it, that's that's really where she's inviting it into her life. In the séance sequence, I, that's how I always take that moment. Yeah, I did kind of read it as a almost a catalyst moment where suddenly the reality of the film is augmented in some way and i guess what i found most curious about the seance is is jessica's behavior which lampert like performs as if she jessica is wishing the haunting into existence yeah not even just wishing she she's comforting you know like she really says it like it's okay you know you can come to me like she she really seems to be sympathizing with them the same way that she sympathized with the headstone and the story of, you know, this um, freed slave and, and really 
directly empathizing. She was so, you know, empathetic during the seance that it was it ended up being not the typical seance scene. No, it's like your grandmother conducting a seance. <laughs> right. She carried that kind of energy, which I thought was a really interesting choice on her part. And it seemed to be exactly in fitting, you know, with the way the film is directed, such as, you know, there being so many of our frightful scenes being in daytime, you know, the nighttime carried an intimacy to it, but we didn't live in night the way we do in a lot of other horror films that I've Mm -mm, seen. No. Instead, we really are in the daytime. And so everything is visible and everything is very clear to our sight. And so... It's a different kind of fear than if it were to take place at night. And I, and I think that contributes to the aesthetic for me is the choice that day is the time for so many of the scenes. It speaks to the moments of terror during the most mundane circumstances. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, as someone that I think I first heard you talking about David Lynch on Director's Club, I thought... That would that that kind of di- dis- disturbing disruption of of mundane everyday Americana, I thought, might uh, might appeal to you. Uh, yes, America is gross. So, yeah. <laughs> also, so much of um, so so much of this film is kind of designed around the idea of ephemera. John Hancock is constantly keeping the viewer aware of the past presence within the future. It's the past assaulting the present and like attempting to reclaim its space. Shots where the camera on more than one occasion like finds itself panning along the walls and ceilings, observing these textures and the stains, literally tracing the history of this house with the lens. Almost all the conversations that the characters are having is always in this like past or future tense like the farm will be great for her i've been here for ages he's going to raise apples we're never really able to exist in a print moment in the film and i think the camera is always force you know enforcing that by kind of framing subjects within these transitional spaces doorways um a cemetery which to some degree is a transitional space the lake, which is this kind of mode of transportation. We're always in this environment that's embodying transition. Yeah, I think that's interesting what you're saying about the tense of their language. Because also, did you find that following through with her voiceover? It seemed to be that there were, I mean, she definitely is recounting and her voiceover continues to recount. But there are moments where she's talking to herself. Her voiceover comments to herself of what she's doing right there in the memory. If we think about the voiceover, are we talking about the voiceover of her or just even the voices that she hears? Well, right now I'm talking about the her voiceover. There are moments where she says, she says like, you were worried. You know, she's talking to herself though. But she's, she's in the moment. We see her reaction to it and it's a nonverbal reaction most times. But then her voiceover says, I was worried. I mean, I think uh, in instances where she has seen something, she will say things like, don't tell them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like those moments. Those were so great. And they seem to be a part of this conversation that you're talking about of the tense of our dialogue. That also then gets into how the past is influencing even how she behaves presently. 
which I think is all over uh, Zora Lampert's performance. Abigail's lines are commenting on her inner monologue. It's not even just that she's hearing voices, but it's it's really that Abigail is in her thoughts, uh, which makes it that much harder to um, to buy it as, as strictly as just a supernatural story and more as something that she's she's creating that 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 threat. Right. One of the lines that Abigail does say is, I'm in, I'm in your blood. I thought that was created at multiple levels of the experience that the character is having. Well, it, it made me consider the possible interpretation, and I'm completely spitballing. I haven't done my research to enforce this strongly, but <laughs> Simone, something you had expressed when when we were watching the film, and I was talking about how fascinated I was with uh, Zora Lampert's performance was that she she feels very very much like an old soul. As I continued to watch the film, it, it really did start to feel like this character feels more like a past life, a, a past world, more so than these other. She stands in total contrast to the the three other characters that she's regularly in, interacting with, and some could draw that that's they're referring to as some kind of mental instability. But I almost felt like she was she was a part part of some previous life and this life was coming back to reclaim her. Take that for what you will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it again looking for that that way uh, to, to to read it. <laughs> what did you think of the music by the way for this? Well I thought it was amazing and how eclectic it is. You know, it starts out with this like very melancholy uh, piano piece that almost, you know, sounds like something out of, it's like the music you hear if you were, not that I read them, but if you were to read the romance paperbacks in the grocery store, uh, like this very <laughs> melancholy, uh, romantic sound that becomes this totally disruptive sync that I don't know if people have talked about how influential this might have been. There's other films that blend the um like the kind of gentle folk music kind of scoring with dissonant electronics, but I think it's it definitely is one of the first to do it. And it's it's before any of the Italian horror films start, you know, using that kind of approach or there's actually a film that's totally forgotten now called Dark August that reminds me a little bit of Let's Go Disco to Death about a man leaving the big city due to a midlife crisis, leaves his family behind and moves to a small town in New England, like Let's Go Disco to Death, and uh, encounters supernatural things there. But the score is is a mixture of uh, folky instruments and like dissonant electronics. And it's the same period, uh, I think 1975. I don't know if there's something in the air at that point. In, in, there's a couple of films that all exist where there's a uh, there's that kind of disconnect from straight up horror, where there's that distancing by having it be the uh, the remembrance of somebody that uh, has experienced something terrible, and you, you're, they're recounting it, and so you can't trust that the uh, the supernatural element that you're witnessing is actually really what happened, or just kind of their the traumatic memory. Uh, Messiah of Evil being you know another one, mm -hmm. but. Uh, even uh, Alan Rudolph's film Premonition, which is pretty unknown, but it's a hippie horror type film. But it's again opens with the main character addressing the audience, and then what unfolds may or may not have happened. 
it's a trope that you don't really see as much in contemporary horror films. I mean, I think it was an excellent choice for wanting to express psychological disassociation and this kind of feeling that you might be losing your mind. I did think that some of the elements of distortion, those things did remind me of things that we hear like in um, Under the Skin, where, you know, obviously Under the Skin is, is maximizing it, but we do get that kind of dissonance to give us an internal, to give us a feeling of what it feels like to be on the inside of the person. The first time I saw Let's, Let's Go Jessica to Death, um, I had been looking for a different film. I had seen a film as, as a young boy. My babysitter was watching television, and she was watching a film where a woman was being pelted with mud. And it looked like it was on a college campus, and it was a prank gone awry. Wow. It, it, was, it was something that made me think that, um, that it was about hazing of some kind, like a, 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 a co- college initiation horror of some kind. So I would rent anything that I could find when I got older that I thought could have this hazing moment in it. And for some reason, the title, Let's Go Jessica to Death, made me think of just people pulling some kind of stunt on somebody. And so I, that was all I needed to uh, take it home uh, from the video store. And it was, of course, not the film at all. Uh, but it, that was how I first came to even rent it on videotape as a, as a teenager. And um, I watched it with somebody that was an electronic musician. And the first thing I remember us talking about was just what year is this? What is, how is this the score? (laughs) Because, because it was so shocking that it was not, you know, 1971. (laughs) And there was already this kind of advance. This is well before John Carpenter or Goblin or any of the things that we were, you know, I think what Clockwork Orange is 71 with uh, Wendy Carlos or Walter Carlos. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's it's still really new, (laughs) like that way of scoring. And for a low budget horror film, like why would that be, why would it be that ahead of the curve on the, on the soundtrack front? But. I can only think that it, it really is a, an attempt to put us inside of Jessica's mind, for us to hear what she hears, for us to think what she thinks. Yeah. But I think it's interesting in your story of how you came across the film that the title, it, absolutely, I would think Let's Scare Jessica to Death would be some sort of hazing. For me, the title reminded me of I Know What You Did Last Summer. Like, it, I think the title is misleading. And I think it's, it, it's, it's misleading in genre, in tone, and in, in narrative. Like, there's so, so many things that don't fit for me with the title that I'm curious how you, you know, both responded to the title. I guess John Hancock took over a script that had a jokey title, It Drinks Hippie Blood, and uh, which de- deals with a... <laughs> According to the writer, it deals with a gay monster that lives in the lake. <laughs> Which is that, um, it sounds like a really bad idea, <laughs> but uh, the uh, I guess Hancock wrote it, rewrote it as Jessica, and then someone at Paramount suggested the the the, the title "Let's Scare Jessica to Death," which doesn't really have a clear connection to the story, but then it gives you the impression that it's about gaslighting. But yeah, I. I and so I was always expecting there to be a uh, some kind of twist that it was all revealed to be that the group were working against her, and so the fact that it never really pays off in that way just always kind of kept me off center. I never was able to predict where it was going the first time. As a side note, the film that I ended up finding with the woman being pelted with the mud was a film called The Initiation of Sarah, 
Um, which is a, a, a Carrie goes to college TV movie from the seventies, <laughs> which is the, uh, it's a total ripoff of Carrie, but set at a university. Mm. And that's kind of like the pig's blood moment of that TV movie. <laughs> Even beyond the title, just the, uh, the marketing materials for the film, the, fo- the poster is such a false representation of what the film is either. It, like the, something is after Jessica, something very cold very wet and very dead that's terrible yeah i guess that's just how they chose to sell horror films about female protagonists at that time maybe that might have made sense to them i yeah i i there was a period where i was collecting a lot of film posters and i loved that film but i was always looking for that poster i don't know man (laughs) if i need to necessarily have that poster up in my in my home (laughs) such a ridiculous way to sell it I've been to that house several times. I've actually ridden the ferry. I, I, I tried to find as many of those locations as I could just on road trips years ago. And that house in real life is an abandoned, creepy old house on a hill. Um, so you have to disregard the no trespassing signs as you go up the driveway. And it's in bad shape. But it, it you know, a lot of film locations, if you visit them in real life, they're disappointingly mundane and nothing like the movie world that you hope to be entering into. But assuming you don't look over your shoulder and see the car dealership, the house from Let's Go Jessica to Death is exactly the creepy experience you want it to be in real life if you ever find it. You can find the address online. Well, we should we wow. should all go there and uh, conduct yes. a seance and record it for the show. <laughs> I should have suggested that we record it live on the front porch in rocking chairs, but I wasn't thinking ahead. I, I do find the opening sequence to be rather terrific, just in like the the way that they choose to cover the ferry ride as this gate comes crashing down into the frame and it, it like really emph- emphasizing the imprisonment that this character is, is about to experience. Yeah, and it uses very mundane, you know, imagery, imagery to like suggest still like this passing over into another plane, another another you know, where where all the uncanny events will occur. It it it, it is it is it, you know it's conveying the sense of a journey being taken, but at the same time it's just it's just a, a plain old ferry boat at the same time. It's it's. I don't, and just the fact that they're driving in the hearse and it's not, it's the same thing you even accepted. But that's a kind of story where I think it played the whole Carnival of Souls trick where it's, you know, oh, it turns out that she's been dead the whole time and that's the, that's the joke. I'm so, I was so relieved that that wasn't the twist. Uh, yeah, right, right. Well, it would be really terrible, I think, if the film did um, negate the veracity of Jessica's experience and I think that's maybe why it's ambiguous but for me I accept it all you know I do accept that Emily is Abigail and and that there is this haunting that's happening and there's this hive mind that these men have but I think it would be terrible if it did negate it in in any way or or try to um say this is just or only in her mind because that's the very struggle that the character is going through and for me, there is a feminist interpretation of the film with all of these elements that you're that we've been talking about that does state, you know, that a woman's psychological health is typically handled with a lack of credulity, that she's just crazy or she's just hysterical, you know. 
and Duncan and Woody interact with her that way, especially Duncan. So I think that one of the strengths of the film is that it doesn't actually then sort of just say, oh, it was all in her head at the end. In some ways, then the film also becomes a critique of the counterculture because here you have individuals that are supposed to be a part of such a you know progressive movement and yet they are still adhering to very conservative views yeah and i think that interpretation follows through narratively because the cuts as as far as what we can understand you know duncan's cut looks fresh the other men's cut is healed over in some way so there is this you know and then when he, when he is attacking her at the boat that this that this cut is a transforming them into being a part of you know Emily's hive and so you know for the the men who see themselves as different from these older men at this old town as having a different ideology end up becoming just like these men in this old town yeah, I've never even really had the impression that hippie men were necessarily feminists. I, I still feel like there was a very backward attitude, even in the counterculture, that the women's movement kind of had to step in and address. I think that Let's Go Disco to Death does reflect that. I don't think I don't think of those characters as being that enlightened. Yes, everything I've read suggests that it that was a slow education that's still happening. Right. <laughs> You know, I, I'm kind of curious as someone who's seen the film many times now, for myself, just kind of watching the film in spots a second time in preparation for this, how much dialogue comes to imply her being a ghost. Almost every line seems to have a double meaning that way. And, and none of it's like hit over the head. No, I, mean, I didn't even really pick is. up on it the first time I watched the film. Well, you probably picked up on the line like when, uh, like say, say when Emily is in the attic with Jessica and she's comforting her, saying, "You're so, so warm." Yes, it's it's implying both a fever and that she's a dead body come to life. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it, 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 and but I mean, even the um, with the line, the line about the lamp in the antique store was like a uh, was it mariposa? I forget the exact term for it, but. Uh, how can something so pretty be evil? It's just old, <laughs> you know, and that's meant to comment on Emily <laughs> or Abigail. <laughs> right. I mean, I like a lot of films from that 70s period where a lot of the dialogue doesn't seem to necessarily be commenting directly on the action. And it's tricky with, certainly with genre films where almost everything has to have an ex expository function. This film probably walks that fine line between feeling like not overly scripted, yet, yet if you look at it under a microscope, almost everything seems to be commenting on the action, <laughs> which is, you know, to its testament, it doesn't feel like there's, it's not overly slangy or pop cultural reference or, you know, it doesn't, and there's not too much hippie slang that feels like it makes the characters look dumb, but at the same time, uh, almost everything that they're saying has narrative function. It's not, there's, there's not a lot of shagginess about it. I mean, these, and these are stage actors and they're coming from drama. They could, they could have easily made it a more Cassavetes-ish kind of thing, and they don't. Uh, and I wonder sometimes how much how much of the screenplay was shot versus what we have, because I get the impression even with the uh, the voiceover was written in in the editing. Uh, they they had the idea for for the, the voices being in there, but that was all 
I mean, that wasn't something that was happening during the production part of it. It's like a, such an essential part of what you experience with that film. Right, exactly. Especially because Zora's um, performance, there are elements where she takes a very pedestrian choice, movement or, or facial expression, um, and she kind of always underscores, you know, what the character is feeling. So then for her voiceover to be something that's put in later, I think evidence is a really strong and confident choice on her part that she's not afraid of there being levels of unknown with her character um, for the audience. That she's not trying to telegraph every single moment or thing. I think her performance is remarkable, just in that it simultaneously feels very authentic in carrying this, this sense of loneliness, but it does resemble a sort of rehearsed movement. It's very much as if she's practiced being normal, acting this way when she was in the hospital. So they're like these gestures, and it's very gestural. There's these gestures that are a combination of a rehearsed performance and almost uh, like a bodily resistance. She's attempting yeah. to withhold the vulnerability. And she felt like so many particularly older women that I've known in my life. She just felt like she felt like somebody I knew. Yeah, and and so many little nervous asides, like little small gestures that you might pick up on on a rewatch, like the way um, when she's asked if she can, uh, if she's a musician, and she says something like, uh, "I I can't even carry a tune," and like the way that she does, like this little eye roll, mm-hmm. <laughs> like she's yes. embar- she's embarrassed at the confession that things like that are, are littered all throughout that performance. It is, I mean, it is a remarkable, it's, it's, even when it gets big it never it never embarrasses you that she can't hit those notes because she can actually pull that off and it's so hard i mean so many films do do madness awkwardly um especially people that you know are used to the bigness of a stage that, that they don't know how to do the the smaller version of it for the camera but it's not the case with this one yeah no the mo- the moment and when she watches duncan all four of them are in the water and she watches Duncan put, you know, sunscreen on Emily's back. And then Emily gives her a look, cut to a close-up of Jessica. And then we cut to a wide and she's turning around and saying, I'm going to get out now. And it, it's, it's one of those moments that you're talking about where it's this awkward gesture that she makes, but it feels so natural. It's kept contained. And, and yeah, I can see, uh, Zach, what you mean that, that she's maybe negotiating the place that the character is coming from, that the character is so insistent upon not being crazy, upon having moved past whatever the incident was that is often referred to, that her body carries this hunch, her shoulders are hunched, and yet her arms fling out at that moment. Her voice is distinct, and yet there's this wobble when she says, I'm done, or I'm finished now, or I'm getting out now. And yet at the other moment where Emily has been pushing her under the water and she doesn't do the sort of frantic scream and the high pitched and the and the you know, she just really in a guttural low voice says, please, please get away from me. Please stop. You know, stop, please. You know, it's so nice because um, it's it's entirely relatable. 
but it, it has a gravity to the character that I feel like a lot of women are not allowed to have unless they're being a villain, you know, a, a, a woman with a lower register in her voice and, and a sort of um, understatement of things is sort of saying, you know, just, just get away from it. That, that kind of expression is usually something that a villain gets to own and the, the heroine must remain, you know, unaware and at the height of fright. It actually made me want to compare because we recently saw Possession compare female performances of psychological unrest. I don't know that I could watch those two film these two film those two films back to back from one another. Right. Have you have you read uh, House of Psychotic Women? No, but I'm writing it down now. <laughs> what is it? Kayla Janice is this uh, Canadian film programmer, and she wrote this this memoir about its combination of of her story and and her own kind of her her tough family uh, up, upbringing, but also her her kind of rise in the ranks in terms of film culture, but then also tying this together with uh, critical writing about. Uh, films, mostly genre films, dealing with neurotic female characters. Um, so she writes about Repulsion and Miss 45 and Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Possession, Three Women and Antichrist and oh, wow. May yeah. and Carrie and etc. Uh, it's a really fantastic book. Uh, I'm doing it probably no uh, great justice in, in my <laughs> the way I'm describing it, but it, it's it's a uh, yeah it's it's fantastic book. Um, She'll probably appreciate my plugging it. But. <laughs> yeah. It sounds thorough, but it also, it sounds really interesting. I, I definitely want to look at it because this is, this is a point of um, something that we're seeing in literature that we could then go back through the bell jar and, and just, and Zach, this film brought to mind the yellow wallpaper. So I think there is this, you know, thread that is present. So I thank you for sharing that. I, I didn't realize Let's Go Disney Death was actually quite a big commercial success when I found it, because it wasn't the kind of film that you would run into that many people talking about it at the time that I saw it. And I guess he says it made like $20 million in 1971. I think it was only made for a quarter of a million dollars. It was a pretty substantial commercial hit. I try to imagine what audiences made of it at the time. Yeah, I, it's kind of funny. My, my mother, she, she was convinced that she had seen it. At some point in the 70s. Well, it doesn't have explicit sex and violence. I want to say that it was like a staple of late, late show programming at a certain point. I've met people that have, have claimed to have seen it like as a late night movie on TV. And that that might be where it's picked up some of the the uh, the cult following that it has now. Although it's still it's still like a uh, an aficionado's favorite, I think, for... Uh, horror fans. I don't know that it's really got mainstream um, notoriety yet. Well, it's about to, Bill, because we have so many <laughs> listeners. They're going to hear about this movie. and Well, I, I, I got to say, I guess someone has had a lot of conversations about Let's Go Just Get a Death in My Life. I mean, you guys both have really interesting impressions of it. I, I, it's it's interesting to hear just... Uh, such such smart an analysis of it because I don't really encounter that much with this film. So it's, it's just as a as a as a fan of the film, this has been fun so far. Just even hear it. 
does John D. Hancock's other uh, films um, have the same kind of aesthetic or, or, or style, and does he go further yeah. into Prancer, it? Prancer, absolutely. <laughs> really? And he directed Prancer. Are you familiar with that film? And, and he followed up with uh, Bang the Drum Slowly, the... Uh... The baseball weepy with Michael Moriarty and uh, Robert De Niro. Yeah, you know, he's mm. um, he's not really what you would think of as an auteur. I mean, he he, mm-hmm. he it's not easy to to find a through line, and and I don't think I've never seen his other horror film, Suspended Animation, that um, came out much much later. But of his films from the uh, the nineteen seventies, like uh, California Dreaming, or um, there's one other one. Baby Blue Marine? Baby Blue Marine, yeah, with Jan Michael Vincent. Yeah, I mean, there's not really an easy thread you could draw uh, between his films. Uh, Lesker Jessica Death does feel kind of unique and unto itself, I mean, really? in his filmography, yeah. I was going to say, I saw his last, he showed his last film in New York a few years ago. Uh, it, it's, and it's this gentle almost family film with like a, uh, a grandmother kind of connecting with her 13 year old daughter, you know, in a small town. And there's nothing about it that suggests the dark, you know, the darkness of something like let's get Jessica to death. But I think this was a case where he saw an opportunity professionally to make a feature film and took it and did his utmost to make it great. Yeah. As a professional filmmaker, but I don't think, I don't think he had a desire to be a horror filmmaker. I mean, I don't think any of them really did. I think horror filmmakers today might think it's a great occupation, like the Rob Zombie, Eli Roth generation. But I think that um, all the people that we associate with horror films of the 70s, I think we're always looking for a way out. I don't think George Romero or Wes Craven or John Carpenter wanted to be horror filmmakers. I think they just saw that those are the only opportunities that were being offered. I I wondered um, if it were similar to the production story of Ganjin Hess, where Bill Gunn was given the film and Zach um, I'm not sure that I'm saying it saying it correctly but he was he was sort of tasked with making a black exploitation vampire film is that right and then he did it in a poetic way you know did it to where it opened up so many more illusions and then also also then had this sort of feminist interpretation because of the way Marlene Clark's characters handled you know, there's the seventies were a period where a lot of filmmakers that wanted to break into the business and, and and have some creative latitude would make exploitation films for commercial reasons, but then use that commercial opportunity to to make personal films. Some some more subversively subversively than others. Ganjan Hess is probably the most extremely artistic film. I um, mean, in that style of, in terms of taking what would have been a yeah, blackula kind of thing and, and going really deep into almost experimental territory. Let's get Jessica to death. Obviously he saw this silly script and rewrote it to be something serious. And, and there's not, there's not a tongue in cheek attitude with it. I mean, I think he intended it to, to be the political, the, the the dramatic, I mean, the ambiguous. I, I think all the things that we find in it are intentional. And I think that he was looking to elevate what could have just been a cheap horror film. I think I think he he took it as seriously as an artist that maybe a little bit more commercially minded than Bill Gunn would ever be. Mm-hmm. You know, and and 
as as a, as a result, I mean, let's go. Let's go. Jessica to death came out in his cut, and Ganjan Hess, as you both probably know, ran into all sorts of trouble before. You know, and I don't think he ever lived to see it appreciated as it as it is today. I don't know. That's the thing I love about genre films of that period is like you have all of these curios for every for every film that launched a career like a Halloween or a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You have you have a film like Ganjan Hess or a film like um, Messiah of Evil or a film like Lamora, Child's Tale of the Supernatural. There's there's a whole lot of them. I mean, have you ever seen, uh, this is actually not a one-off, but have you ever seen a film called The Witch Who Came from the Sea? No. I want, I, I, I think I have, but I might be confusing it in my mind with Night Tide right now. <laughs> okay. It would make a good double feature with Night Tide, but it, it, um, without telling you too much that's that's spoilery, I would just say that um, there's no witch. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's the the title is metaphorical, but uh, but it deals with a, uh, a a complicated female protagonist, and it's ostensibly a horror film, and you, it's from this same era, and it's very. It's very unusual and chancy and unpredictable, and I, I would recommend uh, that you both see it if you like films like this one and Ganjan House. This is, I feel so like honored to be talking to you about all this because your, your, your taste and your knowledge of it all is really, um, I'm learning so much, like literally, like I'm trying to be quiet and not make a bunch of noise with all the notes I'm taking from what you're saying. Oh, thank you. I, 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 this, is, this is something I care about, so... <laughs> So as we close this discussion, I'd like to conclude with you, Bill, and ask, you know, how has Let's Scare Jessica to Death evolved for you since first seeing it? And why do you think it endures as a, you know, a favorite film of yours? I mean, for me, it was a nice surprise when I first saw it because I went into it looking for a scene from a uh, a bad TV movie that I saw as a kid and uh, wound up with something that was eerie and very fresh and new for its time. I think every time I've gone back to it, I, I just love returning to the atmosphere of it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a thing that... Um, it works as a great drama for me as well as a as a horror film. I mean, I, I think that it's whether or not the events are happening in her mind or there's a real vampire situation happening, the pain in the confrontations that she's having with her husband feel it still feels as real as it feels it feels totally plausible and real and painful in a way that doesn't really matter whether or not the the, the fantasy is real or not. I've made it a part of my life to the point where I've reached out to the filmmaker. I've been to the locations. I've, I've driven around those towns, listening to the music from it. I've ridden the ferry. <laughs> um, I've, you know, I, I've, I've introduced it to so many other people. Um, you know, I've had, I've had plenty of conversations less highbrow than this one about it with people, uh, horror conventions and such. It's, so I, at some level, it was a sense of discovery that. Um, I, I, I was the first person I met that saw it, and I'm sure that always makes a difference with any cinephile. Like your own private discoveries are always going to have that kind of emotional, you know, that nostalgia thing. But uh, it, it seems to be one that holds up to repeat viewing after however many years I've been watching it. And um, yeah, it, it means a lot that uh, I was able to uh, be on a podcast solely devoted to discussing it. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and talking to us. Today. <laughs> 
So that's our show. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation with Bill Ackerman discussing Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I'd like to thank Bill for joining Simone and I. You can find the Supporting Characters podcast at www.nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters. And thank you to my co-host, Simone Barros, whose dramatic writing and film work can be found at stochasticartworks.tumblr.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the film discussed during this episode or respond with any other feedback, please direct your emails to filmjivepodcast at gmail.com. Filmjive can also be found on Facebook, Google+, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and please subscribe to our iTunes feed where you can also leave a review which will help us reach additional listeners. And be sure to visit audibletrial.com filmjive to start your free audible.com trial. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep on jiving. Stay for-